Hello, everyone. This is the Voice of Discourse by the Georgetown Voice,、um, and this is the podcast where we do have、uh, debates and different political discussions from diverse and、uh, different viewpoints.、Uh, and today, and I'm your host, Robert Nishimwai, freshman in the college. And today, I have on Monique Wilson and James Bond. I don't know if you guys want to introduce yourself and tell you say something. Uh, hi, Monique. I'm from New York. I'm a freshman in the Georgetown College, possibly majoring in American Studies and minoring in government. I'm a part of、um, <clears throat> Georgetown University College Democrats、uh, and Blue and Gray Tour Guides, and I'm a part of this podcast. And I'm James Bond. I'm from Oklahoma. I'm a freshman in the SFS, and all I have to say is that my name is real. <laughs> <laughs> and you heard it from the voice of discourse. <laughs> So the 2020 presidential election is poised to be one of the most hotly contested elections of our time. We currently have a Democratic primary that is packed with at least 14 candidates trying to win the Democratic nominee and go to toe with Donald Trump in 2020. In this crowded field of candidates, they range from the more progressive candidates to the cent- to the more centrist-leaning candidates. The Democratic primary primary is one filled with soul-searching of political direction and culture that they will come to run on when they face off with Trump in 2020. So, having said all of this,、uh, what is your current take on the shift of the Democratic primary candidates to more progressive measures on ideas regarding healthcare, the environment, and the economy? And we'll start with Monique on that one.、Okay. Uh, I think the shift is long overdue.、Uh, our country is becoming more progressively left, as is the rest of the Western world, by taking a more progressive outlook on many policies like healthcare and the environment. The Democrats will be benefiting more Americans. My only concern is whether Republicans and centrist Democrats realize this. And what do you say to that, Bon? Well, I think that the biggest thing about this shift to the left is that、um, it's put these very important and pressing issues on the table. I think that's the point.、Uh, the conversation that's happening is a start for lawmaking and implement,、uh, implementing very important policy. Now, what I wish,、uh, especially from the media, is that the conversation. The conversation wasn't centered around tactical framing, which is a method covering the issue through a lens of strategy and polling,、uh, rather than the policy's substantive benefits.、Um, I think it happens a lot、um, with a lot of issues, if not all of them.、Um, but a prime example right now is the Green New Deal,、um, and in order for the conversation to effectively move along, I think we need to focus on policies—the policies within. Uh, the Green New Deal, instead of f-、uh, questions like "Is it passable?" "Who's going to vote for and against it?"、Um, "Where does the American electorate stand?" Obviously, these questions are very important, but I think if these are the only questions we're asking, instead of basing the conversation around the real policy proposals,、uh, we s- number one we solidify a pol-、uh, partisan divide, and number two we get nowhere in the policymaking aspect of、um, politics. I think that's an interesting debate,、um, and you know, a lot of times when I watch the news, I see they're、uh, they're framing this debate and this conversation around: are these candidates socialist or capitalist?、Um, you know,、uh, when you talk about the Green New Deal, you know, is this a socialist program or Democrats leaning socialist? But when you look at the American public, more than eighty percent of registered voters support the Green New Deal. In Idaho and in Utah, they have、uh, the voters there.、Uh, Passed、uh, proposition, different propositions to expand Medicaid. So you see that in America, whether it's red states, whether it's blue states, whether it's purple states, the majority of Americans, on some issues, they want to move towards you know whether it's、uh, public 
funded a public-run public, uh, health insurance program, whether it's a Green New Deal tackling climate change. Um, and so in this sense, you know, I want to ask you, Monique, is it a matter uh, of the Democratic candidates moving more towards the left in terms of a social, socialist uh, viewpoint, as the Republicans like to say it, or are they just catching up with where the American people are and what the American people want? Um, I think they're just catching up to where we are. I think it's a bit of both. I think a lot of Americans don't realize what they could be benefiting from. Um, for example, I remember there's this thing that was like um, universal health care, right, with Obama. Everyone, there was a poll that went out, right, and they asked a bunch of like Republicans, oh, do you support basically Obamacare, right? Mm -hmm. And they said, um, no, right? They were like, we don't support Obamacare. Then they asked, do you support Medicare for all? Oh, yeah, we support Medicare for all. But the a, a big part of it is the, the phrasing of it um, that makes people not want to support things based on partisan lines, um, which I think is also another reason why, like, <clears throat> this framing of, like, Green New Deal, mm. can that's like a... It's a hot button issue with Fox News. Right. Like they're painting it as this like, oh, they're gonna take away like our meat and stuff. Like just uh, in terms of like branding and stuff. But I think that Americans have always wanted this. Mm. Um, but I also think now the government is catching up to it because I mean, we tried to get this stuff passed like, what is it like Nixon or Truman, one of those presidents. A couple times we've tried to get um, Medicare for all passed, but our government just wasn't up for it. And now I think that we're mm. moving in the direction that we are finally. And, you know, with you, James Bond, coming from, you know, obviously in the middle of the country, as we like to say, you know, a state like Oklahoma, you know, seeing, you know, so much support around these progressive measures. Uh, I mean, just with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's proposal for 70 percent tax, you know, on the rich, uh, widely, you know, whether it's Democrat, Republican, a lot of people support those measures. Uh, what do you say to people that say that Democrats leaning, you know, again, as we have said, them going more progressive than somebody that's going to alienate people in the middle of the country, when poll after poll, the American people are with them in terms of progressive, you know, um, measures and policies. Do you think that there is truth to that idea that they're going to be alienating the middle of the country, or is this just more political talk and no real show on the ground. Well, I think Monique, what Monique says has a lot of truth to it. I think it has to do with rhetoric. Mm -hmm. I think it has to do with how you present the policies and what words you use. Right. I think that that's very true. Um, and so coming from Oklahoma, um, I think that there needs to be more um, bipartisanship a little bit mm -hmm. um, and not so much cynicism. Um, which, again, I think tactical framing um, kind of perpetuates a cynicism um, about the policies. And, you know, are the Republicans going to vote for this? Are the Democrats going to um, veto this in the Senate? You know, those types of questions are not the helpful questions. We need to be talking about um, the, that political aspect of it, as well as, and the majority of the conversation should be centered um, around the actual policy. Mm. I think that's, and very careful with the rhetoric. I think that's the solution. I sorry, can I ask yeah, a question? Yeah, go ahead. Um, so I agree with you that there's a lot of cynicism and um, partisanship in our government. But so 
But if you're saying, if you're advocating for bipartisanship, then could you say that maybe AOC going with this very, like, progressive bill that she knows is not going to pass the Senate, um, how is that going to foster bipartisanship? Like, because I see it fostering, like, the, the movement forward, because I believe that, like, if we don't put these ideas out there, we're just going to keep being held back because they're going to be afraid mm -hmm. of, oh, is it going to pass? Is it going to pass? Right. And we're never going to get anywhere. So I believe that. But in terms of, like, fostering bipartisanship, now what we have is, like, we're at this kind of, like, stalemate because it's yeah. we know it's not going to pass the Senate until there's a Democratic Senate. Yeah, when I talk about bipartisanship, I think I mean not bipartisan policy because I think that the policy which is being introduced is bipartisan. Right. I think that that is true. I'm talking about rhetoric. I think that we need to stop, um, you know, I think that we just need bipartisan rhetoric and, and uh, more cooperation um, as far as that goes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, on that topic, there was also another uh, issue that has been, that keeps on uh, seeing itself being brought up within the Democratic primary, and that's the question about reparations. Uh, and so my question is how should... Uh, Democratic candidates approach the call to support measures such as uh, reparations for African Americans who are the descendants of, descendants of enslaved uh, ancestors. And we have seen um, Amy Klobuchar was asked about this question, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, uh, Elizabeth Warren, and they all have kind of gave some, some of them have gave more concrete uh, answers as to how to deal with that. Um, I believe Marianne Williamson, who is I believe she's a feminist author who is running for president. She gave an answer about possibly having um, a reparations council uh, from the African-American community that can deal with how to negotiate for the amount that we would want for reparations, that this community would want for reparations, and how to redistribute that amount in what shape and what form. Um, as Elizabeth Warren talked about, you know, the nation needing to come together, having a moment where we're honest about our history, where we need to hear from, from those past and move on and then be able to form some sort of council, you know, to deal with reparations and how that's decided for the African-American community. And so seeing that this is a topic that's being discussed, discussed and the African-American community is a prominent block within the Democratic Party, how should candidates go about answering these, this question and dealing with how reparations looks like, you know, should African-American voters be the ones to decide that? Should the government decide that? I mean, how do we address this question, Lenny? Uh, so I think first what a lot of the Democratic primary candidates have to do is be very specific on this question. I've seen a lot of them kind of shy away from it and give, like, offhanded responses um, and saying, like, oh, it's going to help all Americans. Right. Um so they definitely need to, if, if, they're, if you're being asked about this, you need to specifically say what you're going to do about mm. it. Um, the only, so I like where Marianne Williamson is going with it, mm. but it's just, there's so many moving pieces to right. reparations, like so many um, in terms of who will get it, right? And uh, how much money, all this stuff. And yes, okay, let's say there's a council. Who's going to be a part of it? Mm. Who... Um, what types of African-Americans? How are you going to find that right. out? Um, because as you know, like, slaves' records were not kept about exactly. slaves and, like, from the movement from Africa to the Americas. So how is all that going to come down? Um, it sounds very... I don't know. I mean, to me right now, 
I don't think it's going to happen. Even if there's a proposal, let's say there's a proposal, right? Mm -hmm. And that presidential candidate wins. I still don't think it would go anywhere. Um, but like, like in terms of how the Green New Deal is kind of like a step forward, just putting it out there as a step forward. Mm. I think the discussion around reparations is, it's a good thing that we're having because it's very long overdue. Mm. Um, I just feel like there's um, there's a lot of, of pieces to this right. that will take a lot more work and on. deliberation. And, and I think, last point, I think that what, um, there's a representative in the House, and I'm forgetting his name, but for the past, like, 20 years, he's reintroduced a bill just to open the conversation of mm. reparations and have, like, a um, an exploratory type of committee mm -hmm. um, to see how could we do this? Right. What are some proposals that we could do? Um, and it has not passed. So maybe we can start with that <laughs> and see if, if that will pass, you know, because mm. then we know at least we have people in the House and Senate that are on board with this, mm. and then... Um, hopefully we'll have the presidential uh, candidate that could be on board with that too. And Bon, do you have any thoughts of how uh, Democratic candidates can approach conversations such as rep reparations and how to remedy, um, you know, past mistakes um, and in the way in which they're affecting, mm -hmm. you know, current um, descendants? Well, I agree with Monique. Uh, my view is simply that something substantive needs to be done about this issue. It's a moral issue. If you've hurt a community, you've got to help them. You know, and it needs to be substantive help. It mm. can't just be vague help. Right. Um, and the other thing, I think uh, it needs to be on the table, mm. you know, and I'm glad that it's on the table. It's very important. I would like it if it was closer to the centerpiece as opposed to what I think it might be, which is a plate falling off the edge. Right. You know, we shouldn't treat it as a side dish. We should treat it just as to part appease the community right. and not do anything. Right. Yeah. No, exactly. We should treat it as part as, of a of the main course. Mm. Right. So, also, uh, sorry, just also, I it's also like an ec economic issue mm. um, as long as well as a moral one because as we know, the wealth disparity in this country is outrageous. Um, a lot of the we like to say reparations as if it's a bad thing, mm. as if Caucasians were not getting. Afford. Subsidies, right? And subsidies and things like that. Government that have, handouts, exactly. That, um, if you think about it, is basically the same thing, um, just in terms of like, but black people, um, you know, we were kept slaves for like hundreds of years. But you know, moving on from that, um, but no, definitely like this would reparations economically would dramatically increase the wealth of Black Americans, and therefore, just in terms of like capitalistic mindset increasing the the income of everyone is good for the economy um because then you have more people buying things you have people stimulating the economy um so it's also just to point that out and keep that in mind yeah. yes it's a moral issue but it's also a very economic one i agree well. with that mm -hmm. and so you know i think that that is an important debate that needs to um be had and it needs to be taken seriously it needs to be taken in a sensitive uh aspect and African-American voices should be at the forefront of this conversation as well and making sure that we listen to those communities and hear out as to what their plans are because within the community there's different mm -hmm. ideas about how to go about reparations, what that looks for them and what that looks for each person is different. And so uh, I think it's an important debate, an important conversation that should continue on being had. And as Bond said, it should be at the center, not a as a side plate almost. Um, and so going on with that, um, 
I think that we have, uh, at least I have seen sort of this uh, whole aspect of moral absolutism when it comes to judging presidential candidates. Um, and there's this thing of, you know, this purity test of who has ever taken PAC money, who has opposed gay marriage in the early 2000s and in the 90s, who was harsh on crime back when it was politically popular to have that title as a politician or prosecutor. Um, and um, I, and I want to take this conversation sort of on that aspect of the purity test, where there's almost like a limit test of, you know, some things that a presidential candidate uh, needs to have done or not have done in the past in order to earn the votes of people. Uh, and it touches to more absolutism, where they frame their past and stances in absolute more right or wrong and form a belief that their past wrongs or mistakes should be an outright disqualifier from gaining support from voters. So how do how, how do we uh, as voters go about vetting these presidential candidates by looking at their past and their past actions but also tying those past actions to where they have evolved, to where they are, they are at now, to what they will be able to do in the future. And so, you know, what do you guys think about that? This whole aspect of purity tests within the Democratic primary and within the Democratic Party and whatnot. Yeah. Um, so I think that past actions should be taken into consideration. Um, that is a, per a part of a person. Mm. But I believe that voters tend to be hypocritical. Um, there's this assumption that these candidates should be perfect and have no mistakes, as if people can't change like everyone else. Um, but that's not true. Kamala mm. Harris, she made certain choices as state attorney of California, um, which aren't completely in line with what she's advocating now. Right. But I think it's important to understand those decisions in context. We are in a completely different time right now than we were 20 years ago. Completely I was thinking about it, I was like, iPhones were not created back then. You know what I'm saying? Like, we have moved very in a very positive direction, but also in a, um, a, large, like a, a large stretch of direction in a, in a short period of time. And so if you think about it, if these people are supposed to represent us, um, then they should represent all parts of us. All of us have made mistakes in the past and we've learned from them, we've said stuff and we've talked to people and we've changed our minds about things. Mm. These candidates should be given the same opportunity to do that. Now, I do think it's up to voters, voters though, to decide whether, um, how you kind of have to what, deal what with- they this. can deal with. Yeah, it's, right? it's also you have to deal with this sort of like cynicism in the point of like, or these people just saying it just to win, you know, mm. the the primary, and what are their true intentions? Right. And that's just a gamble you're gonna have to take with any candidate. Right. But I think this purity test of expecting these people to be any different than who we are, right, as if they knew that they were gonna run for president someday, mm. is is outrageous. Right. And and, and Bond, <laughs> what do you say that should we look at their past actions to see what strides they've made, and you know, and see where they might be heading in the future, and what they would do if they were president of the United States? I think purism is the benefit and the burden of the Democratic Party. It's the good and the bad. I think the fact that uh, Democrats hold themselves to a relatively high standard is a good thing, mm -hmm. and I like that about the Democratic Party. But on the other hand, I think we just need to be careful with our purism. Um, we need to make sure that it's constructive for the, the party and the ideological movement, and its objective for the candidate. Um, and as long as it's those two things, I have no problem with it. Mm. The issue is, 
democratic purist um, criticisms are often, you know, often contain one, if not both, of those elements. So mm. that's my view. Yeah, and so I think to to the voters and the listeners, um, you know, when you vet a candidate uh, and you critique them, let the critique be not as a way to bring them down, but as a way to perfect them, as a, as a way to help them evolve and become into that candidate that you want to be able to vote for as president. And I would like to remind people that when Barack Obama first ran for president, he was staunchly against gay marriage, but he is the president who has helped usher in with the legalization of marriage, with the whole Supreme Court case and whatnot, and who has done a lot of things to give more protections to the LGBTQ plus community. And so politicians can make a change. We should always hold politicians to a, a high standard, but doing so, we should always look at everything in context and make sure that the vetting process doesn't come at the cost of us being able to be in positions to make the change that we want to make. Mm-hmm. And so moving on, um, the DNC chairman stated that recent reporting in The New Yorker on the inappropriate relationship between President Trump, his administration, and Fox News has led me to conclude that the network is not in a position to host a fair and neutral debate for our candidates. So what's you guys' take on the Democratic uh, uh, National Committee chairman announcing that he will ban Fox from hosting any primary debate? What do you think about that, Monique? So I see where he's coming from, right? I see the point of view. Um, because definitely if you kept up with Fox News, Donald Trump, Twitter, everything, they're like best buddies. Like mm. he calls in, or he used to call in all the time and, you know, just chat, um, which he doesn't do with any other news station. Um, but my only concern is that there are, to win a presidential, uh, not just the primary, but like the nomin- uh, the presidency, you need to appeal to more people than just Democrats. Mm-hmm. More people than more people that don't just watch MSNBC and CNN. And those people right now are watching Fox News. Mm. Um, and so my only uh, disagreement in this or concern in this is that we won't be able to reach out to certain people and mm. people won't understand the Democrats. Um, perspective, maybe until it's too late. Mm-hmm. And, and Bon, on that, you know, I mean, if you look at the last election, the majority of Trump voters watch Fox News. Mm-hmm. At least forty percent of them watch Fox News. But then you also that tie that to most Republicans and most people in the middle of the country. They're watching Fox News. Your your grandpa, your grandma, they're watching Fox News. Mm-hmm. What they hear on there is what's going to affect how they vote for the presidential election and all these different um, elections. Are Democrats? scaring away from facing, you know, an audience that may not always support them. And in doing so, are they hurting their chances of being able to win the presidential election? You know, is this a bad move on the DNC? You know, I do think that it is a bad move. It's a politically dangerous move. I uh, think that this might be a manifestation. I might have a slightly different view on this, but I think that this might be a manifestation of what Democrats sometimes do, which is back down from a fight. Mm -hmm. Um, I construe this as running away from how Fox News sometimes twists words and policies mm. um, that are presented and what comes out of Democratic candidates' mouths. Mm. Um, and I also think that this is a rather divisive move that alienates the more moderate strain mm. of the party and also the other side. Mm. Um, instead, what I think we should do when words are misconstrued um, is call it out then and there. Right. You know, in the debates. 
don't let them get misconstrued. Just don't let them do that. Mm. Um, take 10 seconds of your allotted time and say, no, that's not what I meant. This is what I meant. Mm. And this is what I said. Um, and, you know, take out constructive ads against Fox, Fox News and say, this is what we present regardless of uh, misconstrued and misinterpreted and twisted words, you know. This is what we mean. I think that that's what we should do instead of that. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. And I think that also the DNC maybe should have worked harder to come to a compromise with Fox News, maybe have a person from their network and a person from another network come together and be the... Um, be co-host with right exactly so like I, I i really get what you're saying that like it's too often the democrats cower mm. and i mean i think that's why there was a lot of like uh i don't know like passionate movements or whatever when nancy pelosi stood up to trump because usually we're the ones to back down from a fight and mm. with her we did not mm. and i think we should not hear either i think this is the wrong move i think that like like those stats said, and I'm looking at it now. There's a like they Trump voters only watch look at Fox. Fox News. Like they only watch that, and we're gonna need some of those. Just like there were uh, Obama to Trump voters, we're gonna need some Trump to Democrat voters. Mm -hmm. And the only way to get them is if we go to Fox News. Yeah, the point is, words are going to be right. twisted mm -hmm. by Fox News. That's the point, and whether or not they're there in the debate. So if we don't have the voice there in the debate saying, no, that's not what we meant, this mm. is what we meant, then that's never going to get mm. to the other side mm. or the more, more moderate strength. Mm. That's my view. And, and I think that's it's that's into the conversation of who gets to set the narrative, right? You know, if you have the majority, because most people in general in America watch Fox News. So if you have that station, that channel who is setting the narrative about what this party believes, what that party believes, and no one in your party is going on and even showing their face and even debating and having those conversations and fighting back against whatever narrative in, in which you may disagree with, then here's the thing. You are going to keep losing these different elections. So, you know, I, I think Democrats need to get up, have a fight, you know, fight back, go on there. They ask you tough questions. Well, guess what? Republicans go on CNN all the time. They go on MSNBC all the time. They go on CBS, ABC all the time. They do not back away from the fight. And so we cannot have a, uh, a political environment where one side just stays to, you know, whatever it is, you know, whatever camp where people are, are more uh, excited about them and supportive of them, of them and being scared to talk to people who oppose them. You know, mm -hmm. we have to take that, you know, sort of political environment away and talk to each other. Talk to that grandpa who is in Wisconsin, who is in Michigan, who only watches Fox News. Go on there, put out your narrative, let others put out their narrative. But as long, at the end of the day, as long as the American populace can get those different viewpoints and narratives, then they are able to make the best choice for themselves that makes the best sense for America. Yeah. The headline is just two devices. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. So you know what? If the DNC chairman is listening... <laughs> Please change that because it's, it's probably not the best move for Democrats uh, to make. So having talked about all of these different issues with the Democratic primary, um, what type of candidate will more than most likely have the best chance of emerging uh, and winning the Democratic primary to become the nominee? Uh, here we have identity, which I think it's, it's going to play a big part into 
at least some people's decision, you know, what are some things that you think people are looking for uh, within the primary to see as who their nominee will be? Um, so, okay, so for the first question, I think that <clears throat> it's definitely going to have to be a more moderate um, person that's going to win the Democratic primary, um, just because even though the party, I feel like, is moving progressively towards the left, uh, not everyone's there yet. And for a Democratic primary and for the presidential election, you need someone that can reach everyone or a majority of everyone. Um, so I definitely think I was telling Robert about this. <laughs> I have th this guy, Andrew Yang, uh, look him up. He's really, um, I really like him. He's a, um, a venture capitalist. Um, he has a very good outlook on, um, on certain things, universal basic income, things like that, but he's not going to win. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, it's just because we are not ready for that. And that's just a sort of like outlook you have to have. You have to have a realist outlook on it. In terms of identity politics, it's definitely there. Um, just like how people voted, um, like black people voted for Obama just because he was black. Um, but also because he was qualified. Yes, of course, of course, of course, of <laughs> course. No, of <laughs> course, beca there. because yeah. there, because this, it was the first time right. um, that a black person had ran and got that far. Because mm. obviously there are black people that have ran before, but that had gotten that far. Um, and our, our country was ready for it at the time. But there were definitely people that, like, I know people in my family that just voted because, you know, are we back, you know? Um, and so I see that slightly coming around again with Kamala Harris and Cory Booker. Um, I do hope that people, anyone, everyone, takes into account their policies. I think policies are just as important. But I do think that it doesn't hurt to... Um, support candidates that you know look like you or you want more like diversity in our government it wouldn't hurt having another black person up in there <laughs> um but yeah i definitely think you know we shouldn't take it too far to the point where we don't care about the person's policy and we only care about their skin tone um yeah and so bond uh first of all what what's your uh, uh response to the idea that a moderate candidate would be the one to merge out of the primary and have the best chance of winning the general election. Do, do you think that that's uh, true, or uh, how do you see that? You know, I have thought about this very hard, very long, and I cannot come to a conclusion. Hmm. What I do know is that identity is very important. You know, I think that, I think that the ideological shift in the party is very important. Both of those things... Um, should be given some merit, and both of those things should be given in some capacity. Um, you know, that should be given some merit. Mm. And um, I don't know if a moderate candidate would be better vetted to win the general or a far leftist candidate. Um, each have their pros, each have their cons right. in various regions. Um, and it's a very, very, very complex uh, question. Hmm. Um, but I would not be opposed because I think that identity is a very important thing. I, I wouldn't be opposed to having, um, and representation is a very important thing in American politics, to see someone up there that hmm. is your gender, is your sexual identity, is your skin color. Right. That's important. 
it encourages you to be more politically active. It encourages you to go out there and vote, um, run for elected office. It's important. Mm. It's just important for our society. So, um, and the same thing with ideological perspectives. It's important to give some merit to right. um, that shift. So mm. that's that's all I have to say. It's a very difficult question. Uh, it's a very complex um, mm. process, but. And so Amy Klobuchar, when she was, um, uh, she was with uh, when Chuck Todd uh, on NBC, and she was asked about this question of, um, you know, how important do you think it is for the Democratic Party to nominate somebody that isn't a white male? And she responded with, I don't think that there should be one limis, litmus test, but I do believe that our ticket should represent the country. In this answer, is she in fact saying that whoever the nominee may be, Let's say, for example, that the nominee it happens to be male for the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. On that ticket, does the vice president, the VP ticket, the VP candidate, does it have to be a woman? Do you think it will have to be a woman? If if the woman is not the candidate is not the nominee, will the ticket at least have to include a woman? I think that it's important. Hmm. Maybe maybe not. A woman, but just a different, um, a more representative ticket. Yes, I just think that it's a very important thing for someone up there in the executive branch, high up there, to be uh, representative of the demographic shifts, of the ideological shifts. It needs to happen in some capacity on the ticket. Mm. And what do you say on that? Yeah, I definitely agree that it's probably going to. If a white male wins they're going to put a uh, someone of a different identity up there just because they know they're going to have to reach out to a certain demographic who's going to want to see that. Um, and I think at this point that we're at, and the, the people that are in this uh, uh, election, this primary election, there's too many qualified, right. overqualified people of different <laughs> identities that there's yeah. no reason to say that this person doesn't meet the standards right. of what I'm looking for. Like, there's no mm. way. So at that point, it would just be on the basis of, like, you know, using what you got mm. and putting people up there that you think could really, like, represent a certain part of this country. Yeah. There are just too many. The the amount of people with different identities than just white, straight, and male mm. far, far outnumber mm. the amount of people in the race right now um, that have different identities, right? And so, um, I think that that just that shift needs to be represented in some capacity. Mm. And I think we have at least once give the American people some credit that you know they did elect the first black president ever, mm-hmm. and they elected him twice. Mm-hmm. And and what you look when Obama was running in his primary, there's the same rhetoric. You know, there's no way a black man is going to win you know, presidency of the United States. There's there's just no way. No way people, no way white people in the middle of the country are going to vote for him. No way, you know, white people in Iowa are going to vote for him. But they did come around and they voted for him. And so I think with Democrats, you know, uh, let's not act like as if people are not going to vote for a certain person just because of whatever identity that, that they hold. Mm-hmm. And I think they need to focus a lot more on make sure that their message is right, is correct, that they can sell it to the larger populace of the country and to a larger electorate. But I would also say um, that we're also at a different part in our, do you think we're at a different part in our, uh, in our government, in our, in our country, just in terms of where we were in 
08 and where we are now, where now we have a president that uh, supports the type of rhetoric, actually engaged in rhetoric that put down President Obama. Um, do you think we're still at that? At, or can we go back to that place where people in the middle of America and such could vote for um, a person that may not share all their their ideals? I think we can go forward. I think that's the thing. I mm-hmm. think we have to look at the past, look at the mistakes that we have made. I just, I think for me, I don't want to sell out this idea that people in the middle of the country will not vote for someone who doesn't look at the majority of people in the middle of the country. I think as long as if you can sell the message correctly, I mean, Trump sold his message correctly. He's from New York, you know, he's a rich guy, but he can sell the message correctly, and people voted for him on that. And on that note, you know, for the closing point, uh, you know, what should be, uh, you know, uh, what do you think, what do you hope is the Democratic messaging going into the Iowa caucus and on to the general election as a closing point? Uh, my only hope is that it's civil and non-divisive within the party. I think the partisan infighting due to our purism can be very, very, um, very much our downfall. And I think that we need to make sure that we're not attacking each other in a, uh, a non-civil uh, non-constructive way. Um, don't shy away from criticism. Mm. Make sure that criticism is objective, constructive. Um, and I think that will be golden. But we can't feed criticism to opponents' mouths. Right. Um, that just seems very counterproductive to me. Mm. And just to add on to that, I would say um, making sure that we are taking into account all parts of this country. That was a major mistake that we made um, during 2016 and that uh, not going to certain places that we should have went. So definitely making sure that all of America is represented and that we're not being specialized more towards like the urban parts of our country. Yeah, I think that also to build off that, there's a necessity with each Democratic candidate, whatever their identity, whatever their background, to come to a local place and uh, feed the rhetoric of the locals to the locals. I think that you can make an issue of, you know, any type of issue, every type of issue. You can talk about environmental uh, justice in from social perspectives, from economic perspectives, obviously from environmental perspectives. And you need to go to, say, the farmers, and you need to say, this is going to hurt you economically. If you can't grow your crops, if there's not an earth to grow your crops, if the soil's right. bad, you're not going to have a lifestyle. Exactly. So you need to care about this you issue. You appeal to those people and what they care about. Right. Yes. And so, you know, on that, I think, uh, you know, for the Democratic, from the Democrats, is that they need to work on messaging, mm-hmm. make sure that they can... Uh, use mess uh, language that can attract different people across different identities, across different regions and whatnot. Um, and the DNC, go to Fox News, have that debate, have that fight. Uh, and so good luck to all the diff- uh, different presidential uh, candidates. And on that note, thank you for listening to the Voice of Discourse on the Voice, on the Georgetown Voice podcast. And thank you to James Bond and Monique Wilson for joining me today. Make sure you follow the Voice on the Apple Podcast app as well as on Facebook. All right, thank you everybody for listening.